What's our purpose as humans? We've been exploring this question over the past month in our fall sermon series, Marching Orders. We found that scripture reveals that our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We learn that to glorify God means to feel, think, and act in ways that reflect God's greatness. We also discovered that we should glorify God for at least two reasons. First, because he is the absolute pinnacle of perfection in every respect. Because of this, he rightly deserves our praise. Second, we should glorify God because Jesus, God's Son, glorified and continues to glorify God the Father in everything. We are called to follow Jesus' example. We also saw that God's desire for glory does not mean he's on a big ego trip. We learned that to create us, to give glory to him, is the most authentic and loving thing that he could do for us. In designing us to glorify him, God has made possible our highest joy and fulfillment. How so? Because joy can only be consummated with praise. Our enjoyment of God can only be fulfilled in fullest measure when we praise him, when we glorify him. In the two weeks immediately prior to Thanksgiving, we began exploring another question. How do we glorify God? We chose to use our church mission statement as a framework for our exploration. What is our mission here at Hawkwood Baptist Church? Well, firstly, it's to introduce people to Jesus. God wants you and me to glorify him by following the example of Jesus' disciple Andrew, who introduced and kept introducing others to Jesus. Introducing people to Jesus is important because Jesus is the only way to know God and the only way to God. Secondly, our mission is to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. Two weeks ago, Pastor Grant reminded us that without hearts that are fully devoted, we can't enter and walk in the kingdom of God. Jesus must be more important to us than security and competing loyalties such as work, family, and pleasure. Jesus said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Today and next Sunday, we're going to explore two more ways that we can glorify God. We're going to utilize our HBC vision statement as a scaffolding for our discussion. A vision statement describes how one plans to accomplish one's mission. Well, what is our vision here at HBC? To glorify God by fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission. Today, we're going to explore the great commandment. Well, you might be thinking, well, what is the great commandment? Well, we're not the first one or ones to ask that question. In Mark chapter 12, verses 28 
2.34, we read about a scribe, a legal expert and teacher of Jewish religious law, who asked Jesus this very question. I'm going to invite you, if you would, right now to stand with me, and we're going to read God's word together. We're going to read about this question from this scribe and Jesus' response. I will read the parts marked narrator, and I would ask that you please read aloud with me the words of Jesus indicated in bold type, marked all. One of the scribes approached when he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one, and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Please be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. The passage that we just read is set in the context of a multifaceted debate between Jesus and several different Jewish religious groups. These religious leaders opposed Jesus. They wanted to entrap him. They wanted to discredit him in the eyes of his followers and the crowds, or to successfully cite him as an insurrectionist to the Roman authorities who would imprison or execute him. In the midst of these debates, a scribe, a legal expert, and a teacher of the law comes forward and asks Jesus a question. Mark tells us several things about this teacher. One, he had been listening to the debates between Jesus and the religious leaders. Two, he had noticed that Jesus provided thoughtful, sound responses and rebuttal. Three, unlike his counterparts, He is not attempting to entrap Jesus, but asks Jesus a sincere question. Four, he addresses Jesus as a colleague and accepts him as a participant in a serious theological discussion. And five, he chooses to ask which of the Old Testament commandments is the greatest. In other words, the most important. Well, This wasn't the first time this question had been asked. Um, The question asked by the teacher reflects a debate at that time between Jewish rabbis over which commands in the law were the most weighty. Jewish rabbis had identified 613 different commandments in the Old Testament law. That's a lot of commandments. 248 of those were positive commands. In other words, do this. 
365 were prohibitions. In other words, don't do this. These positive and negative commands were further subdivided into commands deemed more important or less important. Different rabbis taught that certain commands were more important than others. The teacher here, the scribe, isn't asking which commands need to be obeyed. All the Jewish religious leaders understood that all God's commandments were to be kept. The teacher is asking, what is the fundamental premise of the law on which all of the individual commands depend? In other words, what commandment best captures the purest essence of all the commandments? In verse, verses 29 and 30 of our passage, we read that Jesus responds first with a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He quotes the Shema. This creed summarized the cornerstone of Jewish faith and practice and was repeated twice daily by all pious Jews. Well, what is the Shema? It begins with, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Shema first focuses upon God's nature. God is one. God has a singular identity. He isn't like the plurality of gods found in most pagan religions. Judaism is a monotheistic faith. So is Christianity. We worship one and only one God. The Bible tells us that all other gods are false gods. Yahweh alone is God. As such, he demands complete allegiance. Worship of all other gods was and remains absolutely prohibited. The Shema also focuses upon the personal nature of God. It says the Lord, our God. Yahweh is not just any God. He is Israel's God. He has a name, Yahweh. He chose to enter into a covenantal relationship with the Israelites. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you too have entered into a covenantal relationship with God. Yahweh is your God. You are Yahweh's son or Yahweh's daughter. Isn't that amazing? The Shema also focuses on the rightful response of God's people toward him. The Israelites were to love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Well, what does it mean to love God? Remember, I like to ask questions. What does it really mean to love God? Loving God involves much more than acknowledging his existence. It's more than an emotional attachment. Loving God means to make him the most important thing in your life. These descriptors, heart, soul, mind, strength, are a way of saying we are to pursue God with our whole being. Submission to God's will and bringing glory to him is to be our supreme desire and undertaking in life. Well, I'm going to bet that some of you with an eye for detail may have noticed that the descriptors Mark uses about loving God are similar, but slightly different than those found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. 
We read in Deuteronomy that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Mark, however, includes a fourth descriptor, with all our mind, in Jesus' reply. There are likely two reasons for the inclusion of the phrase, with all your mind, in Mark's account. Some versions of the Old Testament at the time Mark wrote contained this word, mind, in the verse in Deuteronomy. Mark may have used this phrase, with all your mind, for consistency with the Old Testament version with which he was most familiar. But there's a second possibility. Mark wrote his biography of Jesus for a Gentile, a non-Jewish audience. The Gentiles understood the human personality a bit differently than Jews did. For the Jew, the word heart included the mind. In Jewish thought, the heart was the command center of one's being, where decisions are made and plans are hatched. The heart controlled one's feelings, emotions, desires, and passions. But for Gentiles, the mind was thought up separately, was thought of separately from the heart. By including the word mind, Mark ensured that his Gentile audience understood the phrases as they were originally intended to indicate loving God with one's whole being, including one's mind. Well, Let's go back to Jesus' response. After Jesus quotes the Shema, he does something unexpected. We read in verse 31 that Jesus says there's a second commandment that must be coupled with the first commandment. He quotes Leviticus 19.18 where we read, Love your neighbor as yourself. While the teacher asks for one all-embracing command, Jesus puts forth two. Originally, the verse cited from Leviticus applied just to fellow Israelites, but by the first century, this command to love your neighbor as, as, you, as you do yourself was widely understood to refer to all human beings regardless of ethnicity or religious persuasion. What was novel about Jesus' reply was the combining of the command to love God with the command to love one's neighbor. The commands are not number one and number two of a long list of commands. Together, they form the primal command or the great commandment. Jesus says this double commandment of love transcends all other commandments. Together, they reveal the heart of the entire Old Testament law. If these two commands are fulfilled, all the other commands will be fulfilled as well. The conversation between the teacher, the scribe, and Jesus continues. In verses 32 and 33, the scribe says to Jesus, You are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he, God, is one. By the way, the reason he's saying he there is Jews would not say the name of God. And so he used the pronoun instead out of respect. You have correctly said that he, God, is one. And there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Notice that the teacher of the law repeats what Jesus said and commends Jesus' answer as astute. 
He also combines the phrases with all your soul and with all your mind with the less abstract phrase with all your understanding. This demonstrates the scribe understands the essence of this commandment. The teacher then adds his own comments by asserting that these commands to love God supremely and to love one's neighbor as oneself are more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, he's saying these commands are more important than the laws concerning the temple sacrificial system. The teacher isn't repudiating the worship and sacrificial laws. He knows they're important. But he keenly understands the significance of Jesus' response. He follows in the biblical tradition of Old Testament passages like 1 Samuel 15.22 and Hosea 6.6 where God told his people that obedience was more important than sacrifice. In other words, the scribe understood that loving God through obedient living was more important than religious rituals that could be performed without a heart that matched the act of worship. Well, how did Jesus respond to the teacher's comments? Mark says in verse 34 that Jesus sees that the teacher has responded wisely Jesus had been evaluating the teachers, the scribes' comments, and had noticed significant spiritual insight. Jesus then says something quite interesting. We read again in verse 34, Jesus says, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Those words were a compliment. In fact, this is the only account, I learned this this week in my research, this, was the only, this is the only account in all the New Testament of Jesus commending a Jewish religious teacher. It's evidence that not all New Testament Jewish religious leaders were hypocrites. But Jesus' response, you are not far from the kingdom of God, was also an appeal The teacher's recognition of the importance of loving God and loving people placed him near the kingdom of God. He had come a long way, but the term not far from indicates the teacher must choose to go further. He must accept God's rule and reign in his own life. He must do more than acknowledge God and biblical truth. He must personally choose submission to God as king and to the kingdom's prince, Jesus, the Messiah. Mark doesn't reveal to us whether or not the teacher chose to take this next step of faith. How can you and I glorify God, going back to our original question? By choosing to obey the great commandment. By choosing to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by choosing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. But how? How do we love God? by choosing to submit to his rule and reign with our whole being. Our love for God should be a response to his undeserved love for us. We love him because he first loved us. 
We are called to give our whole life to a personal God who demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die for us. To love God with all your heart has to do with affection. Loving God with your heart means to make him your greatest treasure. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Loving God with all my heart means valuing my relationship with God, with Jesus, over anything and everything else in my life. Loving God with our heart has to do with affection. Loving God with our soul has to do with devotion. To love God with all my soul means loving God with my attitudes and intentions, my emotions, my thoughts and feelings, and my body. The soul is the source of vitality in life. It's the motivating power that provides strength of will. Together with the heart, the soul determines conduct. Loving God with all our soul means making godly choices. It means pursuing obedience to God's word. It means pursuing a life of humility in our attitudes and speech. Loving God with all our minds involves employing our intellect and reason. God doesn't want us to check our minds at the door when we embrace kingdom rule. For instance, God calls us to move beyond, now I lay me down to sleep, prayers. Thinking about our faith isn't something to fear. It's a requirement. In 2 Timothy 2.15, we read, Study to show yourself approved by God, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God has little use of lazy minds. The early Christians not only outlived and outdid their enemies, they outthought them. That wasn't outthought them, out, they out thought them. They read, studied, wrote, and served God with all their mind. We're, we're called to not be conformed to the world's thinking, but we do little to advance the kingdom if others can easily dismiss us as ignoramuses. We need to commit our minds to God so that we can offer intelligent and rational reasons for our faith. And it doesn't take a seminary degree to do that, by the way. Well, loving God with all our strength refers to putting our love for God into action. It involves our physical capacities. It involves serving Christ's body and using our gifts and talents as good stewards in kingdom ministry. It also involves choosing to use the financial resources God has entrusted to us for kingdom purposes, including faithfully bringing our tithes and our offerings into his New Testament ministry hub, the church. Jesus said that we must love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But he also said we must love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, who is our neighbor? Is that just the people who live next door? Well, I have a newsflash for you. Are you ready? Here it is. Everyone you know is your neighbor. Jesus taught in the parable of the Good Samaritan that our neighbor is anyone we rub shoulders with who has a need. And guess what? Every person you know has one or more needs. 
your friends, your co-workers, the people who live next door and down the street, the exercise enthusiasts you share time with at the gym, the families on your kid's soccer team, the people in your civic club, they all have at least one need. It's a spiritual need. They're spiritually lost without Jesus and without real hope. They need someone to introduce them to Jesus. How do we love our neighbor? By responding to the needs we encounter each day. Spiritual needs, relational needs, emotional needs, physical needs. How do we recognize these needs? By opening our eyes and becoming an observer. By investing time and energy in getting to know those around us. By being a friend. By engaging in simple acts of kindness and service. By praying for those we rub shoulders with. By asking God for opportunities for spiritual conversations in which we can share our spiritual stories and the good news of Jesus. How can you and I glorify God? By choosing to obey the great commandment. By choosing to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by choosing to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Did you notice the word choose in each of those statements? It's one thing to know what I was created to do. And quite another thing to choose to do it. What choice or choices is God presenting to you this morning? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we take a few moments to think about that question? I believe Jesus is saying to some of you this morning, like he did to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You believe that God is and that he sent Jesus to die for your sins and that he rose from the dead three days later to prove he has the power to give you eternal life. But mental assent to these truths isn't enough. You must choose to surrender your life to Jesus' control and become his follower. Will you choose to do that today? Our prayer teams will be here at the front after the service to assist you and pray for you if you're willing to make that choice. Others of you say, Pastor Ken, I, I want to be Jesus' follower. But you've not made this public through baptism. Jesus called every disciple to go public by being baptized. To resist Jesus' command is not to be fully surrendered to him. Jesus said that if you confess him before others, he will confess you before his Father in heaven. He also said if you're unwilling to confess him before others, he will not confess you as belonging to him before his Father in heaven. Will you choose to submit to Jesus and follow him in baptism? Our prayer teams will also be here to assist you with that decision. For others, 
Jesus is calling you to return to your first love. If you're really honest, you once loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But your affection for him has waned. He and his kingdom are no longer your greatest treasure. He calls you to resubmit yourself to his control and start making daily choices that will rekindle love for him within your heart. I believe for many of us here today, God is pointing out that our love is lacking for our neighbors, those with whom we rub shoulders with at work, school, social activities, and next door. He's calling you and me to choose to respond to their needs Their need for a listening ear, their need for friendship, their need for kindness, their need for support, and most importantly, their need for a Savior. Will you choose to allow God to increase your love for your neighbor? He is here in the person of his Holy Spirit, desiring to transform your heart of stone and my heart of stone into a heart of flesh a heart that feels and is moved by his compassion, a heart that is tuned with his mercy and grace, a heart that is emboldened to reach out with his love and truth to those around us. Let's take just a moment to listen, a few moments, to listen in silence to the Spirit of God as he speaks to you and to me right now. Father God, please help us to say yes to you. Help us to choose to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Thank you that you sent your Holy Spirit to enable us to do what would otherwise be humanly impossible. Thank you that right now he is empowering each of us who is saying yes to you to live out your will and to bring much glory to you. We receive by your grace that empowerment with gratitude and joy in our hearts. And we look forward to the adventure with you that awaits us. It's in Jesus' name. We ask this. Amen.